This is Gil Manser, hoping to be one of the first to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB FM, where today's guest is the esteemed voiceover actor and teacher, Samantha Paris, with her new memoir, Finding the Bunny. Bobby Block grew up in Los Angeles and started doing voiceovers for cartoons and commercials when she was 15 years old. Since then, her voice can be heard in over a thousand regional and national commercials and 200 animated half-hour TV shows. Discovering she had the gift of teaching her skills to others, she moved north, founded her Voice Tracks School for Voiceover Training in Sausalito, and legally changed her name to Samantha Paris. Samantha, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Why, thank you. Gosh, I sound kind of complicated. Well, no. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an Straight path. If you just read the book, you can see how it all goes in a direction. As I th- read through Finding the Bunny, mm-hmm. I marked several sections I'd like to have you read aloud. The voice you choose for each of the sections is up to you. Okay. Okay? But before we open the book, perhaps you'd like to share a few things about yourself and the challenges of writing a memoir. Ooh, boy, oh, boy. Um, well, it was challenging, because first and foremost, I didn't want to write the book. I wanted to have a book, Uh but I didn't want to write it. And I didn't want to write it because I just had a lot, a lot of bad programming growing up. Um, My brother and sister used to tease me that uh, if I ever used a word that had more than three syllables in it, they were shocked. And I always, I grew up always having my nose glued to the television, which ended up being very beneficial for my career, but I kind of hate to admit it that I initially grew up, I wasn't a reader. Mm -hmm. And so I was always made to feel stupid. And I just had this huge stigma around me that I could never write. So I was scared to death to start writing the book. And I even explored um, having a ghostwriter. I mean, I really went through I went through a lot of trouble as I said to not write this Mm. and then of course I ultimately discovered you know for crying out loud Samantha if you're going to write a memoir you have to write it yourself (laughs) so and then it ended up being the hardest thing I've ever done and by far the most rewarding thing Mm -hmm. I've ever done Mm -hmm. so I should let our listeners know that it's a very personal memoir in Mm -hmm. parts yes You, you reveal a bit of your past and Yes. Thoughts, inner thoughts, and yeah. things that happen in your life mm-hmm. that usually people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. I, um, when I started to write the book, I, I wrote it for two reasons. Um, one of the reasons was I wanted to make my unconscious teaching philosophies conscious. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to be able to share those philosophies with people outside of my school. But the other reason why I wanted to write the book um, I look at it as kind of one big love letter to my students. Um, You know, we all have insecurities. We all are vulnerable. Um, And and my students display those all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being a teacher, I don't know why it is, but I think teachers are kind of put on an invisible pedestal Mm -hmm. somewhat. And so I always know that I've been perched on one, but I've hated it. I feel so uncomfortable being on it because, I, I mean, we're all equal. As I said, we all have our stuff. We all have our issues. 
but my students, I think, never thought I did. So I wanted to write this book so that they could get to know their founder, their mm-hmm. mentor. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it would um, um, inspire them to know that I, too, had so many struggles, so many obstacles. And um, so I really, I wrote it for them. You know, I love them. I, I, you know, 30 years of teaching, and I, I just, I love my students profoundly. And any way I can help them or inspire them, I will. And so hopefully this book is yet another vehicle. Yeah, I read that you've had 10,000 students. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of people to influence. Yeah. What do they come and what are they looking for when they arrive? When they come to Voice Tracks? Yes. Well, for, okay, first of all, they come from all over. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, all over the world or the country, anyway? No. Um, they come from all over the Bay Area. They come from up in Sacramento, uh, Mendocino, Carmel, um, the whole, and then the whole Bay Area. And those are the students that, that of course, are coming on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But I do have students that fly in and take weekend classes from other parts of the country and um, I talk about in the book, I think at one point, I, I a few years back, had a student that came from Japan. Right. And so people do come from all over. But, yeah, I would say about mm, 80% of the student body comes from this huge, Fairly bigger close. Yeah. Bay Area. Right. Yeah. So what are they looking for? Oh, right. What are they looking for? Um, <laughs> I want to look- be an, I want to be the voice of so-and-so. Well. Superman. Yeah, Batman, whatever. They, well, yes, I do have a lot of students that dream of doing voices for cartoons and video games or, you know, just in general, people have a real curiosity about voiceover. People have told them that they have a really great voice, and so perhaps this is something they should pursue. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they all tell me that. And the minute they tell me that, I'll, I always say, well, you know, I'm great somebody told you that because that's why you're here, but voiceover really doesn't have anything to do with your voice. And then they're, they look totally, you know, dejected and miserable, and then I have to kind of pick up the pieces and start at the beginning. But, um, yeah, so a lot of them come because they want to have some kind of voiceover career, mm-hmm. whether, again, if it's commercials, cartoons, um, uh video games, audio books, talking toys, I mean, you name it. But a lot, a lot of people come to voice tracks, initially anyway, because they're looking to, um, they want to feel more comfortable making a presentation at work, or mm-hmm. they want to be a more engaging trial attorney, or it'll be a school teacher who loves teaching but is just painfully shy to have to, you know, read a story or... You know, so, so people come for all sorts of reasons. Right. And then there are a lot of people that that maybe through the grapevine, somehow they've, they know that this can be um, an interesting form of therapy, of really discovering who they are, mm-hmm. discovering their voice. So, yeah, they do come for all sorts of different reasons, which is one of the reasons why I think I've been able to be so successful and have the school, you know, here in the Bay Area versus the logical place, which would be L.A. or New York, somewhere like that. Um, it's uh, they come for so many different reasons, which is why I've had the school now for 30 years. Right. So why did you come north? I mean, that's the, the logical. Everybody who's here, who I know who's in acting, wants to go, you know, down there to be close for right. whatever is coming up. Right. 
But uh, you did the it in a reverse way. Yeah. I kind of do everything that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually like came here uh, as Bobby Block and really started to get established. Right. So I'm starting my business and then I changed my name. Like, really? You, you think maybe you would move AKA, here? AKA. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so I started voice acting when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And that was and born and raised in L.A. And... Uh, my dream was to be a famous actress. I didn't even want to do voiceover. Well, first initially, I didn't even know what voiceover was. Right. So when my parents sat me down and explained that it was using your voice, but that you weren't going to be seen, well, I had a fix. You know, I wanted to be a famous actress. So, um, but anyway, voiceover, they took me to a voiceover class. And um, really quickly, my my grandfather, I have a history of broadcasting. My grandfather, uh, his name was Martin Block, and he was actually known as the very first disc jockey in New York. He started a show called The Make Believe Ballroom. Hmm. And so he was known as the the first disc jockey in America. And then my stepfather um, was also a disc jockey in Los Angeles. So the whole radio thing was right. in my blood, and that's why they took me to a voiceover class rather than an acting class. Anyway, long story short, I did start doing a tremendous amount of voiceover work. I was also living my dream of doing on-camera commercials and episodic television and all that. But I don't know. There was just this this feeling I had where I loved what I did, but I felt so uncomfortable in L.A. I felt so uncomfortable with the Hollywood scene. I always felt like such a fish out of water. I would go to auditions, and I just felt like I was so different from all the other girls, and I, I just didn't well, feel. Well, you were. <laughs> I just didn't feel like I. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. No, it isn't. But you know, when you're, you know, seventeen, eighteen, twenty years old, it's, 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 it's uncomfortable. Right. So anyway, so I loved what I did, and but I, I hated living in L.A. That was the bottom line. And so when I was 28 years old, I was fortunate enough that, you know, I'd done several cartoons and whatever. I mean, I was um, financially okay. And so I just decided to pack up and move up here because my dream was to always, always, always live near the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And I was obsessed with it. Mm. And so I just packed up. I didn't know a soul. I just came up here. I, I had met this one family at a party, um, and they lived um, in Marin. And I asked them if I could just stay with them for a couple of weeks until I could get my bearings. Right. And um, so then I bought a house in Mill Valley. Mm-hmm. There's a picture in your book of using Mill Valley as your first studio. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I guess I should go back. I didn't just I didn't just blindly move here like and not know what I was going to do quite honestly uh back in the day uh in Los Angeles when I used to audition voiceover uh you know commercials right. I would see the um advertising agencies um you know that wrote the the scripts mm-hmm. and believe it or not there all of the major advertising agencies short of New York they were in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So San Francisco was creating all of the great commercial opportunities, but they would then send the scripts and the opportunities down for the L.A. actors to audition. For the talent. So I moved up here thinking, well, 
there's got to be work up here. Mm-hmm. So I initially moved up here thinking I was going to do voiceover work here in the Bay Area and also fly down and continue to do voiceover work in L.A. And then all of a sudden my phone rang. I think I'd lived here maybe for about six months or so. Uh, my phone rang, and this gentleman, Tom Applebaum, he um, he said, oh, I understand you teach, and um, I'm looking for someone to teach me voiceover. And I didn't teach. Um, and so it was a single person that got you on the road to teaching. It was actually my 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 former husband, Tom Pinto. We were married really young, and so we got divorced like when I was 27 or so. And Tommy was uh, in the voiceover industry as well. And so this Tom Applebaum called uh, Tom Pinto in L.A. and said, do you know of somebody in the Bay Area that teaches? And so Tommy said, yeah, I do, mm-hmm. and gave um, him my name. So I spoke to Tom Applebaum, and, and I didn't want to admit that I didn't teach because he had already been told that I did. So I just kind of, you know, I was like, uh, yeah, I, 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 I teach. Anyway, you know. Right. So he was my first student, and I called up my ex-husband. And I said, what the heck did you do that for? Why did you say that I teach? <laughs> so anyway, one student became two, and two became four, and it just sort of started to multiply. And But so it was not initially the plan to move up here and start a school, not at all. So is the Sausalito location where Voice Tracks is centered, mm-hmm. is it there so you can see the bridge? Is that the point? Well, I first, uh, like I said, I bought a house in Mill Valley. Right. And I was uh, teaching out of my house for— so you can't really see the bridge from Mill Valley. No. You're down in a valley. No. Yeah. But, you know, got to drive <laughs> over it a lot. Uh, no, so um, I was teaching out of my house, and then it was getting too big for that. And so then I just rented a recording studio in Sausalito mm-hmm. for a bit and then, yes, ultimately found the space. I can't see the bridge from my space, but I look out at the water and the boats, and and that's okay. On the dock of the bay, huh? Yeah. 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 Good place. So now you live in Petaluma, though, and divide your time between here and there. So how did you end up in the up in Sonoma County? <laughs> Uh, I've been here in Petaluma since, um, maybe you can clear this up for me or we can Google it. It was either 1992 (laughs) or 1993. I literally moved up to Petaluma about a week before that horrific incident where little Polly Class was murdered. That was 93. 93? Yeah, I remember. So that's when I moved up here from Hmm. Mill Valley. Yeah. That's and a heck of a start. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I was like, gosh, what the heck have I gotten myself into? Yeah. But you know what? I can remember that uh, in, in that uh, I, as horrific as that was, and I was, I was having second thoughts. I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Th- those feelings were immediately erased when there was the church service for her. Mm-hmm. And I can remember it taking me. It was about an hour and a half to get off the my exit at Petaluma Boulevard South to get home. It was just this sea of, of right. cars, right. dignitaries, all sorts of people, you know, coming to um, pay tribute to this little girl. And the way the town came together was – it was extraordinary. It was something that I had never seen. I mean, I, I – again, coming from L.A., 
Mm-hmm. We don't Which one community kind of grows into the other community, et cetera. There is no community there is in no LA, community. right? So coming to Mill Valley, and that, and and I was there for like you know four or five years or something. Um, but the the vibe, actually, the reason why I, I left Mill Valley, and no offense to Mill Valley or, or Marin, because you know I work in Marin, but um, coming from, I, I ended up still wanting something a little earthier. Mill Valley felt. Just still too shishi for me, coming from L.A. It, it, More still, real? Yes. Yeah. So I liked, um, so when I came out here to Petaluma, it was, um, I just loved how authentic everybody was. And um, it just, it felt like home. It was a fluke how I got here. I can tell you that too. Okay. Um, so my husband, my second husband, Andre, we were married for 20 years. That's where the Paris comes from. That's where the Paris comes from, Andre Paris. So we're living in Mill Valley, and his parents lived up here in Santa Rosa. Mm. And so one day on our way to have early dinner with them, Andre was reading in the Sunday paper that there was an open house, uh, and it was a Julia Morgan Ah. Uh, inspired. Yeah, she's a she's a famous California architect. Right, yes. Hearst Castle. Yes, and that's you know like silly innocent me. As soon as I read Ju- Julia Morgan, and I'd been to Hearst Castle a million times, I thought, ooh, maybe this is like a little mini Hearst Castle. So we had no intention of moving. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like not in in the cards. I said, let's just stop and see this. See, this is like a little Hearst Castle on the way up to seeing your parents. Right. So. We went to the house. It was on the corner of D Street, you know, the big grand yes. D Street. Yeah. Along. D and 10th. All the chicken mansions. Well, guess what? I ended up buying one of those chicken mansions. <laughs> D and 10th. I'm trying to remember what this There's house. a big Mediterranean yes. house. Yes, I do know That's, the house. Yeah. That was my house. Uh-huh. And But what happened was the Julia Morgan house, it was right across the street. It was just this dinky little house, and it was like absolutely Nothing. Well, that was for the chicken workers. I guess. I don't know. But again, I wasn't, we weren't planning on, on buying anything. We just wanted to see this for fun. And I was so disappointed because I was expecting something grand and it was not. And right across the street, there was a for sale sign, this big Mediterranean mm-hmm. style home, which I actually talk about in the book. When I was a little girl, I used to drive around Beverly Hills with my father and dream about what you know, being a famous actress, what big fancy house I was going to buy. And I always wanted to buy a Mediterranean house. And all of a sudden, here was this house. It was like the house I always envisioned, dreamed of as a little girl. And it was for sale. And so we just like totally on a fluke that day, we put in an offer, never thinking it was going to be accepted Mm -hmm. and it was also contingent upon selling our home and like all this stuff so we just never thought it would happen well within three days our house was sold the petaluma house was bought and that was 1993 and i've never looked that was a good time to do that Yeah. yeah but i don't have that house anymore oh well because we got divorced I, I have know. so many well, stories. Also, but you got all the old pipes and wiring, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we did all that. You did all that. Yeah. Ah, well, that's what I mean. It's, you've got to do all that. That's yeah, right. we do have to do all that. Lots of history there. Well, I'm going to answer the question everyone is asking who's listening is, where did finding the bunny come from? Mm. And you've written in your book and, and explained it quite well. So um, if you could read, let's see, page 15 here. Okay, I want you to start right at the bottom paragraph where it says, I was the middle. So this is me um, 
teaching class mm-hmm. at Voice Tracks. Right. Here's my dysfunctional story number two. I was the middle child. My siblings and I are each three years apart. There's my younger sister, Lori, then me, and then my older brother, Larry. Before my parents' divorce, my parents was about, mm, I don't know, maybe 11-ish, and I was 8-ish. My father used to subscribe to Playboy. I look around the room. For the articles, right? Everybody laughs. Well, my brother was allowed to take out the centerfolds, and he had Miss January through Miss December plastered on his bedroom walls. Larry taught me that on the cover of the magazine, there was always a small Playboy bunny hidden somewhere. You know, that that little logo with the big ears and all? Well, Larry would test me to see if I could find it. And sometimes I would spend what seemed like hours staring at the cover trying to find the bunny. And I loved it when I found one. So what's my point? I started to learn voiceover when I was 15 years old. I didn't have a lot of life experience to use. So looking at my scripts back then and knowing that I didn't have a special voice, I knew I had to try to see as much as I could in the copy. In other words, I was looking for the bunny. I'll show you exactly what I mean. Look at the script for Shopperby. All right. We aren't going to look at the script. No, it, we're not. It's written and printed out in the book. But that's where the bunny came from. Mm-hmm. That's the bunny you have to find. Did you find the bunnies on every one of the things on the wall? I think so. You think so? I still kind of um, – I haven't done it in the last, last few years. Do they still years. do that? Because well, they've I, had two other, you know, publishers – his daughter and well, I was going to ask you if they still even had Playboy magazine. Well, so there was talk of it going just to you know not being printed anymore. So I don't mm-hmm. really know. Well, I don't you know, look for it anymore <laughs> for some reason. I do. It's it's been quite a while. Um, I don't get the Chronicle anymore, the pink section. But I know you know the little man that's jumping out of his chair yes, for yes. reviews. Well, they used to hide him on the cover of the pink section of the. Uh, was of the he Chronicle. supposed to be hidden? I think so. Okay. Maybe. I, I just spotted him. I didn't know he was hidden. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the one that, that I do remember, uh, the the woman who had uh, in a you know had a nice tan and then a little bit where there was a Playboy bunny, obviously she'd had a sequin or something on there and mm-hmm. they peeled it off and there was no tan that showed the bunny, but so so but that that'll, that'll date me immediately, right? <laughs> the other thing is your first uh, I you wrote about your first chance when you talk about your little uh, kitty cat. It was a cat food commercial, your first oh, commercial. Oh, right, when I did my first commercial for and Little Frisky. So basically you went in, and what happened in your brain? Tell us about that. Ooh, well, yeah, so it was my first voiceover lesson. And as I said, um, I didn't initially want to go to this lesson. I sat in the back seat of my parents' car pouting all the way there. So You were you 15. Know, I was 15. That goes with the territory. Exactly, right. exactly. So we walked, I walked into the studio, and there were, you know, gosh, I don't know, probably about 20 people or so there. The, the teacher was there, and um, there was a woman in the booth recording something, and I had never seen the inside of a studio or a recording booth or, you know, anything. Um, and to me, this was, I had done a lot of um, theater growing mm-hmm. up, musical theater and, and mm-hmm. things like that. I say a lot. I mean, I was 15 for crying out loud, right. but, you know. Uh, so I, I, I had done theater. Of course, everything was not professional. And here I am in this re- professional recording studio and with all these adults. And, you know, acting was just so important to me. It was, the, it was all I wanted to do in my life. 
And so I really felt like it was the biggest moment of my life. And so I was given the script and just escorted into the studio. And it was cold. I just kind of, you know, I, I glanced over it for a second. I saw it was for cat food. Mm-hmm. And I could remember, okay, too. let's go back a step. You said it was cold, but explain what that means. Oh, uh, so I hadn't seen the script. I hadn't read it or anything. It's cold so reading. It's, it's right. Cold reading. So it's not like they gave it to me and I could go out in the hallway and you know, look at it for 10 minutes and come back in. I was just given the script and, and, and got behind the microphone, started to glance at it, saw that it was for Frisky's cat food. I immediately thought of my two cats at home that I didn't like. I didn't like cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good sign. No. I love my little Yorkie. Okay. Yeah. No, actually, I shouldn't say that I don't like cats. It's just that they were my stepfather's cats, mm-hmm. and I was very, very unhappy with the fact that my parents were divorced, and now I had this new stepfather. So And new cats. With his cats, yeah. exactly. So all of this is running through my tender brain at 15, and all of a sudden they just said, you're rolling. And so I just, I, I, I just immediately thought, what does a cat sound like? And this little voice came out of me, and I just became the cat. And I finished the commercial, and um, I mean, my heart was just pounding through my chest. Have, have you ever realized that when you're nervous, you're, the saliva leaves your mouth and it enters the palm of your hands? It's like no, everybody. Not, yeah, 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 right. So, um, yeah, so that was the beginning. Well, I think you need to go on and say what happened is everybody applauded, opened the doors, says, we've got a star. Oh. Yeah, she, she's not going to toot her own horn here, right? <laughs> no, don't be embarrassed. That's what started you on the road. It there. is. It yeah. is. Um, I, I, the uh, teacher uttered the words that I had always been dreaming of hearing, you know. He said I was brilliant and I was going to become a star. And mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, it's really beginning. And right. actually, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. You yeah. got an agent within the year. Yeah. 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 And Zoom. Zoom. Right. It wasn't quite Zoom. I actually auditioned for an entire year before I got my first job. And my first job was a voiceover job, and it was a commercial for... Burger Chef, which was a chain, oh, yeah, I that guess, was, in the Midwest. That came out of, actually, it's from England. No, that's Little Chef. I'm that's sorry. Little You're chef. Right. That's Little Chef. Yeah. That, right. And um, it wasn't even a real commercial. It was just a demo for what would be the real commercial. So uh, I was paid $79. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And I said, I like two pickles. That was your line. That was my line. Okay. I like two pickles. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it took me a year before I booked that. You made seventy nine dollars for that year. Yeah. Wow. Good job. Yeah. But then it was. So what is what is an audition like when you're a teenager? Do you just go in with a hundred other people, and or what happens? I mean, I we all have seen the auditions in movies, you know, where people do chorus line, line kind up. of things. That, yeah, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a couple of ways uh, back then that one would audition mm-hmm. uh, for voiceover. Right. An advertising agency will have a script. Let's say it's for McDonald's, okay? And, and, and so back then it would say, we're looking for a young girl, a bright voice, you know, 15 to 18 years old. So, and the advertising agency would send that script to the talent agent. And the talent agent would then bring in to their office mm-hmm. 
what clients they had that fit that category. So I would literally audition in my agent's office. All the talent agencies have small recording studios. Mm. So, um, you know, you just go in one at a time and do the audition. The other way I would uh, do auditions would be, of course, going to a casting director. And... So kind of the same thing. I mean, there, you, you know, you go in and there could be three people there or there could be 30 people there. I mean, you had your own call time. Mm-hmm. But um, in general, auditioning for voiceover doesn't feel nearly as threatening as auditioning for film or, or stage. I mean, I used to do, of course, a lot of um, auditioning for episodic television and mm-hmm. film, etc. And you know, all of that, don't call us, we'll call you, and the cattle call, and all that, it applies to that area of acting and stage acting. But uh, voice acting is is a lot more, I guess I can say, user-friendly. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's uh, they're not judging you on how you look. They're just listening to how you sound, right? Right, exactly. Okay, I'm going <clears> to <throat> pick me. this up as an opportunity uh, you mentioned episodic television, and one of your big breaks was to uh, appear in two episodes of uh, Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon. Mm, so mm-hmm. here to there. Right, right. And uh, I think it's interesting if you could read this little section from your book because you have an idea of what your parents were like. Mm, okay. Is that okay? Sure. It's a, it's a vulnerable part of the book. Yeah. Okay. 1985. Burbank, California. I'll be there in a minute, my mother calls from the kitchen. I'm just finishing up the dishes. My friends Tommy and I have all gathered around the television in my parents' living room to watch the first of my two episodes starring opposite Michael Landon in Highway to Heaven. Look, there you are, says Gabrielle excitedly. My stepfather is snoring away, passed out drunk on the couch. I'm actually relieved. Three days ago, I had stopped by with some dry cleaning I had picked up for my mother. As I walked in the door, a television commercial I had just done as the voice of Lucy from the Charlie Brown cartoon series was playing. Well, would you look at that? What a brat you are, my stepfather says, laughing. It's perfect casting. Now I turn up the television extra loud to drown him out. God only knows what kind of comments he would make this time. At the half-hour commercial break of the show, I get up to go into the kitchen. There at the kitchen table, my mother sits, staring vacantly out the window, nursing a vodka tonic and taking a drag of her cigarette. I open my mouth to speak, but think better of it and return to the living room. Okay, we're going to get back to that in just a sec, but we have to take a break. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest is Samantha Paris, the award-winning voiceover actor, teacher, founder of Voice Track School for Voiceover Training, and author of the new memoir, Finding the Bunny. Stay tuned for a few more insights into voiceover acting and perhaps to listen to a few recognizable voices from Samantha Paris. Okay, that excerpt you read just before the break about the how your parents reacted to your Really major television debut, would you agree that we'll call mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. And uh, with indifference is mm-hmm. a polite word for it. Mm-hmm. And um, if not, disdain. Mm-hmm. How That must have been hard to put in the book. You know, funny enough, nothing was difficult to put into the book. Mm. 
um, my friends and family all know that I am honest to a fault. Quite honestly, what was more <laughs> what was more difficult was that uh, I could have written volumes more. There's a lot more I could have put in the book, mm-hmm. um, but because I still run a business, uh, there were things that needed to be left out. In other words, this book. Uh, I'm so proud of it, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe there'll be a second volume once I retire. <laughs> but um, I had to be mindful of the fact that I still own a business and that, um, uh, you know, I have a wonderful team that <laughs> rely on, on on voice tracks for their livelihood. I mean, I have to keep voice tracks and everything intact. So right. there definitely were some things that I didn't write that I actually wanted to. But... Um, I guess to answer your question, um, I always I wanted to make sure that every single thing I wrote was truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think any of us grow up having a perfect childhood, but um, and I, I I mean mine was not easy. I'm sure that there are some people that grow up where their childhoods were a lot worse. Um, others, of course, a lot better. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the thing that was that, that's difficult about r- reading this right now is that it's taken me a long time because of their disdain and, and their negativity and their lack of support. They actually made me feel guilty about being successful. Hmm. And that is just something really recently I've been able to get over. You know, it's okay to be successful. It's okay to be prosperous. It's okay to have a great life and be happy. You shouldn't be made to feel guilty about it. It's okay. But it's taken me a long time. So you needed to to wait till your 50s before you could write a memoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. The, uh, as you say, it's difficult, but especially since it sounded like they were the ones who wanted to take you and get you into voiceover. No, in the they first just place. wanted to take me there to shut me up. Oh, I see. Because that was gonna, you weren't have to go to so many different classes and be the bell of the ball, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, well, quite honestly, you know, uh, I mean, if they really had listened to what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It would have been an acting class. Right. It was a voiceover class because uh, my stepfather was in the industry, being a disc jockey, and um, quite honestly, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we were a typical suburban middle class family. They they drank away their uh, money. Yeah. Um, but uh, they took me to this class because the teacher actually worked for my stepfather. Hmm. Um, my stepfather, back in the day, um, after he, he wasn't on the air anymore, uh, he when you would go on uh, the airplane and you would listen to pre-recorded shows, you know, right. the music and right. stuff. So my stepfather used to put those shows together for oh. like Continental Airlines, TWA, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher of the voiceover class um, actually did a show for my stepfather. And so the reason they took me to that voiceover class was that it was going to be for free. If uh-huh. my stepfather supplied the audio tape, I could take the class. Oh, funny. So that's really... Bring tape, we'll record. 
Exactly. <laughs> so since I was five years old and wanted to be an actress and I was, you know, from age five, I was in singing lessons, dancing lessons, doing stage. I mean, I just, that's all I thought about. And so they took me to that class to kind of shut me up. Yeah. You write about in here about the creative challenge of commercials. Yes. Yes. And uh, I love that passage, actually. Yeah. Well, you want to read from it or do you want to just talk about it? Um, sure. L let me read from it. Okay, actually. it's on page thirty. I've checked. I actually ticked that one You've off. You've got myself. that one marked. Okay. Hating commercials. Yeah, hating commercials. Yeah. So this is right after I've taught class for ten hours. <laughs> okay. Twelve hours, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <clears throat> three hours later. I faked it tonight, and I feel guilty, as in dishonest, empty. I'm glad I didn't have an engineer to run the board tonight. I need the alone time. I clean the coffee pot, empty all the trash, and realize I haven't been alone in my own studio in years, maybe even a decade. The students laughed a lot in tonight's class, but I was faking it. Not the love, but the laughs. I wasn't in the mood to teach an animation class. I actually really don't enjoy teaching animation acting all that much. People assume I love it because I voiced so many cartoons back in the 80s in L.A., but I don't. I've always preferred the creative challenge of doing commercials. To help guide my students who hate commercials, I must first get them to look at commercials in a different light. They're simply little 30-second or 60-second plays, each one with a beginning, middle, and end. In many of my classes, I make the students write ads. I say to them, you try to write a commercial. It's not that easy. You have to take a product and somehow make a 30-second story out of it. I also love the challenge of commercial acting. Let's face it. As a performer, I am performing for an audience that hates me. Unlike in a play, movie, or TV show where the audience members are all willing participants, in a commercial, the audience doesn't want to watch me or listen to me, and there are high-tech inventions that can cut me out. So when I can grab my audience and connect with a group of people who don't want to connect with me, I find that to be such a super sexy creative challenge. I could go on and on about great commercials. I did try to stay mindful, however, that tonight's class was the true passion of many of my students, so I know that in the end I did an important job. Right. So let's talk about what different kinds of classes you offer. Oh, gosh. I know when I looked on your website, which is your your company name, isn't it, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Voice Tracks San Voice Tracks San Francisco. That um, you had quite a number, a, a large number of different classes. I mm -hmm. assume you don't teach all of them yourself. No. Um, the school operates in two uh, two terms, January through June, July mm -hmm. through December. So right now in this July, uh, January through uh, June term, we are, we're offering nearly 80 different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. courses. Some are only an hour long. Others go on for several days. Right. Some of them, I mean, I teach private lessons, and then some of them are four-week workshops or six-week workshops. Um, we have uh, classes... On the weekends, mm -hmm. that's when uh, teachers from L.A. come up. You know, like if you want to learn how to do animation, yes, I teach animation. I'm just saying it's not my favorite thing to teach. 
Um, but no, I mean, like if you want to learn animation, you're going to learn from Pinky of Pinky in the Brain, or you're going to uh, learn from um, Bart Simpson, you know, things like oh, that. Oh, that'd be nice to do. Yeah. yeah. So um, we literally have classes morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. And at any given time, we're offering, you know, like I said, at least 80 different types of classes. So um, we teach commercial voiceover and, like I said, cartoons, video games, audio books, talking toys, uh, promo, documentary, um, in-house corporate presentation mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. dialects. I mean, you name it. Right. We teach it. Um, so the the obvious question to me is that, you know, you, you hear someone like on The Simpsons, and they play several different characters and with different voices. Mm-hmm. So how do you find the bunnies, then, that are the different voices? How do you find the voices? Yeah. You know, one of my famous expressions is, talent can be taught. Aha. And... You know, that's almost amazing thought right there. <laughs> I really believe it. You know, 30 years and 10,000 students later, uh, let's first be mindful of the fact that the vast majority of people that come to voice tracks to learn, they're not actors. This is not Hollywood, okay? They've never acted a day in their life, and yet I have turned thousands of people into voice actors. Mm -hmm. So I believe talent can be taught. Voice acting is a craft. If you want to be an accountant, you go to college and you learn accounting. Or if you want to be a dentist, you go and you learn how to do dentistry. Well, voice acting is the same. So um, when people attend my Finding Your Voice lecture, Mm -hmm. I immediately get everybody up, whether they like it or not, and I show them how easy it is to create voices for cartoons and video games. And there's many different techniques uh, one of the main techniques us voice actors use is just learning to place your voice in different parts of your body. Right. So I can just very easily visualize the sound of my voice coming out of the top of my head or through my eyes or my nose. All right. You know, right. there's the, uh, I could put it more, you know, like there's kind of this adenoidal placement, or I could do a little munchkin or the, or goofy, the throat. teeth in front of the lips kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. That was my other point. So we all do voices because we all can place our voice in these different parts of the body, and everybody can do it. Um, and then, yes, to your point, I'll hand out pictures of cartoon characters merely standing like the character or making the face of the character. Yeah, if the character has big teeth, well, just putting all the energy into the teeth is going to create a character. Right. Right? So, yeah, it's a craft. It can be taught. Well, good. If you want to learn it. Yeah, but who taught you that? How did you learn that? Just trial and error? Well, you I, said you found that six-year-old when you did the kitten, you know, and, and could sound like a little kid, kitten, mm-hmm. a little <clears throat> Correct. Right, for the cat food commercial. Um, as much as I say talent can be taught, and I really believe that, you know, let's also not kid ourselves that some people are blessed with gifts, and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there an expression where they say generation is, uh, talent is handed down? Like it skips a generation? Skips a generation. Exactly. So as I was mentioning, my father, Martin Block, Mm -hmm. 
was a very gifted communicator. And um, so I could have gotten some of that. But I had very, very little training. It just came naturally to me. It was and still is a gift. And that's really interesting because once I started teaching, that was one of the reasons why I panicked uh, with that first student. Mm-hmm. And initially, in the fr- in like you know, in the first year of my teaching, I thought, "Holy cow! How am I going to teach? I don't know what I do. I just do it." And so it was really quite a process to really figure out what I was doing uh, unconsciously or subconsciously, figuring out how to make that conscious. So how did you put, did you take notes? Did you uh, organize your thoughts in some manner? Did you write a script for yourself? How did you make that first presentation? Then? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I, I remember um, having a little, having a small microphone on a stand and I had a bunch of commercial scripts Um that I gave to Tom Applebaum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I just sort of asked him to read it. And he sounded like he was reading. And um, I said, no, you've got to really imagine talking to someone. You've got to visualize somebody you're, you're talking to so that it can be more conversational. Mm-hmm. And it still didn't work. And I said, okay. So well, what was Tom's background? Um, he owned a trucking company. Okay. Apple Trucking. Okay. Never acted a day in his life. Gotcha. Right. So I can't remember what the script was for, but in order to get him more conversational and not sound like he was reading, I started to like interject with him. I'd say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. What's it called again? Tell me more. <laughs> in between what he was saying to really get him to uh, talk to me. Right. 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 So it just kind of, you know, it started like that. But it was a lot of... Just gun point two head, Sammy, come up with something. Uh, when I, after I had about maybe 30 students or so, 30, 40 students, I was receiving these uh, thank you notes in the mail where mm-hmm. people were saying, you know, that not only were they booking more voiceover jobs, but just that they were really beginning to discover who they were, to find their voice. And they were thanking me for, uh, you like helping them to find themselves. And I found it so curious because I thought, geez, I'm just teaching voiceover. Like, you know, what's going on here? So I innocently asked um, my husband, Andre, I said, you know, I was showing him the letters and I said, do you think there's a story here or something? And uh, I said, do you think I should get a, uh, no, I didn't say, do I think I should get a publicist? Is is there, do you think there's a story here? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, okay, so how do I, like, how would I get in the newspaper? I was so naive. And he says, well, you have to get a publicist. And I said, a publicist? The only famous people have publicists. And and, and Andre said, how do you think business stories get in the newspaper? And, how, you know, I was like, oh. So I got a publicist and uh, showed her all of these letters. And uh, next thing I knew, uh, the, uh, the San Francisco examiner did a story on me. And then... Um, oh gosh, I can't remember. There was one other newspaper in the same week that did a story on me, and Ron Owens read the Examiner 
article and invited me on his show. And so literally, like within a matter of a, a week, I went from having 40 students to I had over 1,000 phone calls. Wow. And I didn't know what to do. I was in a panic. And this was back in the day where I was I thought I was just sort of teaching for fun. I was an actor. I did not want to be a full-time teacher. I did not want to have a business. And now all of a sudden I have a thousand phone the, the 1000 phone calls came within a matter of a Friday afternoon till the following Monday morning. Mm. This was back in the day when we had those cassettes, mm-hmm. answering oh, yeah. machines, and my phone all week, it just kept ringing, it kept ringing, and I just kept taking out these cassettes and, you know, throwing in another cassette. And so I had to hire somebody, you know, to help me transcribe right. all of this. So this is just a long-winded way of saying I I had all these people, so I thought, okay, I, I, I best teach for, you know, groups. So I... You were doing individuals before. I was doing individuals, and I was doing, like, groups of four, maybe a group of six or eight. But now these are people that are just calling from all over, and they have they don't know anything about voiceover, they, you know, or nothing. So that's how my Finding Your Voice lecture started. And it's actually pretty much the same lecture that I did my first lecture 30 years ago. And, you know, now I've been doing them. I, I do them, like, about every six weeks. And I can just remember driving into the city. Uh, we, I, I rented, you know, I got a hotel room or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I remember driving over there. I had like kind of a couple ideas in my head what I was going to do, but I didn't, you know, not fully. And I remember Andre saying, do you even know what you're going to say? Do you know what you're going to do? He was far more nervous than I was. And I said, no, not really. Because I didn't. I, I, how can you know? I mean, I'd, I'd never attended anything like that myself, so I, I had nothing to copy. I had no reference point. I just got in front of this group of people and started talking and started doing the voices and bringing people up. It's It was, it sounds really corny, but I, I always have felt like there's been a higher power guiding me mm-hmm. when I teach. I think it's you. It's me, yeah, but I mean, but to, now to it's me. But to identify it, you know, but, that you have that inner core and strength yeah. took a while. Yes, exactly. And I really just discovered that um, in my late 40s and early 50s. Right. Guys, don't worry about turning 50. It's actually really okay. Yeah, it is. For all actually. you youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> that means you, Mr. That's Engineer right. Man. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, you had one of the things that appears throughout the book is this fear in the middle of the night when you were a youngster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a archetypal fear uh, when you're young for many people of something bad is going to happen to me. Yours specifically is you were going to be murdered. Mm-hmm. So how did you protect yourself? Let the listeners know there's a secret magic way to do that. Yes. So when I was really little. I used to hear my parents screaming at each other down the hallway. And so I didn't feel safe. I felt really vulnerable, and it was horrible. And um, that insecurity, you know, I mean, still to a certain degree today, I'm a worrier. But I think it all started, 
you know, way back then. Anyway, so I was five, six years old and really worried about being murdered. And so I would lie in bed and um, we lived in the um, San Fernando Valley, in Woodland Hills. It's very hot in mm-hmm. Woodland Hills. Mm-hmm. And uh, tumbleweeds used to blow into our swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I would lie there, and I I thought that as long as I tucked all my sheets around me really tightly, everything, all the way up to my neck, so the only thing that was showing was my head so I could breathe, my arms, everything inside. So as long as I had all the sheets tucked around me tightly like that, nobody could come in and murder me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I used to stare up at the uh, ceiling and think about dying. And so I'd be lying in bed and I would think, okay. I knew what it was like to fall asleep, right, and then wake up. That's what we all do. So being little like that, I would lie in bed and think, okay, when you die, it's like sleeping forever. When I die... I'm going to sleep forever. Okay, wait a minute. Forever. I'm going to sleep forever. I'm never going to wake up. I'll be dead. When you die, you sleep forever. And I would just keep thinking that. Mm-hmm. And I would especially, f- I wouldn't just fixate on the word die, but that word forever and what that meant. And I would fall asleep. And then, of course, the next morning I would wake up. And so I would think my shoop, my super-duper sheet solution had worked. Certainly. You know? Yeah. And then I, uh, I ultimately carried that into my voiceover work. Um, it was back then, uh, you know, really being fixated on what every word meant when I was 15 and started to learn voiceover. I'd be looking at the script, and I would really digest every single word to to get the meaning um i just did a script analysis script analysis class the other night and i had a student read a script and and all of a sudden they came to the product and they said uh something like you know it's new it's shop and save and i said what was that what's the product shop and save what's shop and save i said well it's the store shop and save I go, wait, 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 let's go back for a second. Somebody invented this store, and they were trying to come up with a name for the store. And it's a discounted store. So they came up with the idea that when you shop, you're going to save money. Shop and save. Okay, I'm going to go shopping, and I'm going to save money. So where the average voice actor or beginning voice actor would say, oh, it's shop and save. I would say, shop and save. Mm-hmm. Hear the difference? Three different words. Because I'm thinking, I'm really thinking, I'm shopping and saving. It's digesting the meaning of words. So, you want to do some voices for us? Is no. there somebody we'd have to... No. Okay, we'll go away from that real quickly. Um, I can do voices for you. No, that's all right. Um, oh, do let me hear. Well... You can listen to some of my old shows. I can't remember. I think, it, what did I do, the Irish voice? Oh, everybody thought I was uh, Ewan Colfer because he'd been on and I was talking about him. And so I did a quote that he'd done and I read it mm-hmm. and everybody thought he'd read it. So, oh, well. Um, 
uh, I'd love to talk about my appearances in the book passage and the audio. Why don't we do that? Because you're going to be in Copperfields in, do you have the dates? I do. I'm going to be, uh, my first book appearance will be at Copperfields in Petaluma, and it's on Saturday, March 31st from 1.30 to 3.30. Okay. And uh, that's a book signing. And it'll be my first book signing, so that's really fun and mm-hmm. exciting. Um, but then in uh, April, on Sunday, April 15th at 4, I'm going to be appearing at the Book Passage. And I'm going to be doing, I think, what will be a very, very different kind of um, book reading, mm-hmm. like what authors do when yeah, they go sure. there. <laughs> um, I'm in the middle of producing the audiobook version of Finding the Bunny. And it's going to be a groundbreaking audiobook because I'm not going to just read the book. There's about 80 different uh, characters in Finding the Bunny. And so uh, the audience is going to be listening to 80 different voices. We're going to have music and sound effects. So it's very much going to be like a a radio play. And so at Book Passage, what we're going to do, I'm bringing a few of my students with me, and we will you know, start by reading a scene in the book and maybe midway through we will stop, but the, the audio book will continue. And so we'll be playing the audio book and then that will seamlessly once again move into us reading. And so, you know, moving in and out of the audio book, which will be, I think, really fun for the audience because they'll see how an audio book can really, with sound effects and stuff, really make something um, three-dimensional and and, you know, me being a lover of radio, and, and I know you are, um, I don't think enough people really get to experience radio theater like in the old days. So mm-hmm. at, at uh, Book Passage, they're going to be able to experience both at the same Sounds time. That's very exciting. Yeah. All right. Say the date again. It's uh, Sunday, April 15th at 4 o'clock. Book Passage in Corte Madera. Uh-huh. Right. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest has been Samantha Paris, the award-winning voiceover actor, teacher, founder of Voice Track School for Voiceover Training, and the author of the new memoir, Finding the Bunny. Our studio engineer for today's show is Anthony Garcia. Station manager is Sean Knight, radio coordinator, Wendy Nicholson. Podcast archivist is Mark Prell. The theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us on our next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, March 10th. And we hope to chat with Rebecca Rosenberg about her fascinating biography, The Secret Life of Mrs. London. Until then, we'd like you to picture a Valentine's Day card featuring two famous Peanuts characters. Lucy is carrying a bag of candy in her hand as she walks past Snoopy. Casually tossing a piece of candy over her shoulder, Lucy voiced by Samantha Paris, says, Love is a gift for no reason at all. Thank you so much. <laughs>